You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello and welcome to episode 292 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by Seth Miller and Fosma Moon. Hey guys. Hey. Howdy. It's, uh, it's a lovely Tuesday afternoon. We're recording this earlier than normal. Cause, Wait, uh, you actually know what day of the week it is? I, I keep track. <laughs> uh, and and you know we have to we have to record the show earlier because Seth is turning into a grandpa and starting to <laughs> starting to starting to do woodworking and go to, go to bed early. <laughs> you know we're in trouble when he becomes a shop teacher. <laughs> you know, just random side story about shop teachers. Um, I actually didn't get to take shop class in high school. Uh, we sort of had one, but I, I did a drafting course instead, which turned out to be very valuable and useful to me later in life. And so I'm happy I did it. Um, we, I, I was like the last year they did paper drafting with like oh. the square and you know the arm and moving around and doing it all by pencil. So it was really cool. Um, and then learned CAD later. But uh, separate from that, uh, my wife was telling me a story last night as we were talking about some of these things. And I, I bought more t- tools, uh, more power tools. Um, and having the correct tool turns out matters a lot. But she was telling me the story about how she did something in shop class when she was like in middle school. And hers wasn't very good, but her sister, who's a year younger than her, came back and it was really good and much straighter lines and this and that. I'm like, oh, and my mom was like, oh, she probably used to this and that, you know, and, you know, the right, the, the right defense and had it all working correctly. And she's like, oh, no, I don't think we had that. You know, I was like, how could you do that? You know, use a table saw with a dado blade without a fence. She's like, no, you know, you just held it carefully. And this, and I'm like, yeah, that's super dangerous. She's like, well, our shop teacher did have a missing finger. <laughs> <laughs> wait, <laughs> like, wait, what? Like, I get like, she said, well, none of the kids ever lost fingers in class. And maybe, maybe the shop teacher lost in a different way. I don't know. But just from a visuals perspective and the image you're trying to project, I don't see how that's a good idea. Oh, one, of, one of my wood shop teachers told, used to tell us how he'd come in on weekends with dead deer to cut them up on the bandsaw. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be completely off topic here for the first couple of minutes. A friend of mine who lives in the Catskills was apparently uh, telling some stories about like their, their uh, neighbor. What's the stupid app? Uh, oh, next, next, next door. Yeah. Next door chats or this or that and something. And apparently someone hit a deer and it's like, Hey, you know, put a message. Hey, I hit a deer. It's on the side of the road around here. Be careful driving over there. And one of the responses was like, you just left it there. You didn't do anything else, <laughs> which, okay, fine. So like, well, I notified the authorities and then she's like, you have to tell its family. <laughs> it was apparently like a serious response. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, apparently someone has to go find the family of the dead deer and let it know that uh, mom or dad is dead. I don't I thought I, I thought know. that I thought you were going to say that they had, you know, told them to go pick it up and, and use the meat. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, actually that's, that's actually true. a thing. You know, I was surprised that they didn't give in where they are and whatnot. But I guess <laughs> maybe it was, hey, here's where it is. If anyone wants to go pick it up and eat it, it's only been dead a couple hours. Probably the maggots haven't gotten to it yet. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Next door is uh, an entertaining beast. <laughs> I have thus far in my life avoided getting into it, and I'd like to keep it that way. If you, if you like to read just just completely nonsensical stuff and crazy neighbors, it is definitely for you. Yeah, I spend a decent amount of time in my life on Twitter. I figure <laughs> the nonsensibility is the like, quotient I need. Oh, man. Um, all right. So let's dive into some stories here. Um, the first one is a ProPublica uh, article about uh, the TSA hoarding over a million N95 masks, even though airports are basically empty and TSA staffing levels are down. Um, and it really doesn't need 1.3 million N95 masks. Um, and so this was concerns were raised back in April. And, uh, you know, they were saying, hey, we should donate these. And people said, no, we're not going to donate them. We're going to we're going to keep them. Uh, very interesting. Are, are the TSA agents working at the uh, you know customer facing roles wearing masks at all? 
I think they are, right? I think they are, yeah. yeah. At, P- at PDX, they are. Okay. But, like, are, like surgical masks, not N95s? Or? I'm pretty sure they're surgicals. I haven't seen N95s used um, yeah. at okay. the airport. It's sort of a weird thing with just the whole N95 situation, and I get it. Those are the ones that are going to, you know, quote unquote, guarantee no transmission. Um, but what you know, when you ask the question of like, what is the goal of wearing the mask, and how much of it are you trying to control? Obviously, 100 percent all the time for everyone doesn't work right because we don't have the supplies. And so, someone, someone, one of these days is going to open up a warehouse and find wherever the government put like all the ones they hijacked from the states and from everybody else. They're going to be stored somewhere. But yeah, yeah. It's just kind of, it, it is kind of weird, yeah. And, and it's instead the TS it says the TSA quietly stored many of them in a warehouse uh, near DFW. <laughs> and we're paying for the warehouse space. Yeah, yep. So anyway, um, it's it's it was expected that this would this would last them thirty days. That so that that surplus would last them thirty days for all of their security officers, but did did not account for the decline in the number of officers needed lately. So um, you know, <laughs> with with air travel down like ninety five percent in the U.S., uh, I would suspect it would last them a lot longer. <laughs> well, thirty days. But I would pose the question: Have they actually changed their staffing levels? Knowing them, oh, that's good. That's a good question. I don't know. Well, here's the thing, though: forty days. That's only. I mean, if you take. What are one point three million divided by forty? That's only thirty two thousand five hundred. So, is that really not how? There's only thirty thousand, thirty two thousand TSA agents working per day. Working per day, yeah, yeah. Right. For some reason, I would have thought the number's higher. I don't know. It seems low for sure. And also, only one mask per person per day. Yep. Like you your lunch break, you got to put it back on. That, in theory, is a really bad idea. Of course, I've been wearing the same one for three months now. So, um. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Better than nothing. Maybe, maybe some people out there who've flown have seen what the what the um, TSA agents are wearing. Just let us know, because I mean, I've only been to PDX once during all this, and uh, other than that, I've been getting updates on their Twitter. So, um, next up, so Cessna has a new plane, uh, the Cessna Sky Courier, and it completed its first flight this week. N- new clean design, clean sheet design aircraft. Pretty amazing. And you thought it was never happening again. I will say it looks like a minivan of the sky, but uh, <laughs> like it's... it's supposed to be more. It's not supposed to be a minivan. It's supposed to be more like the uh, Ford Transit 250 or 350. Oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yes, yes. with Sprinter van. Yeah, with some wings bolted on the top. Well, at least they'd have to redesign the cabin. <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing. Is it so? It's the existing order is actually for FedEx, who's got fifty of them, um, and it's also I think known as the Cessna 408. Um, mm-hmm. So in you know, sort of the scale of what the company has delivered, it's big for a prop. Uh, it can handle three LD3 cargo containers. Oh, wow. So like palletized cargo in a prop. It's pretty cool just as a concept to me, um, especially with all the airlines doing crazy things to convert passenger planes to cargo these days anyways. Um, temporarily, this is a permanent version of it. Uh, but also, uh, it can operate as a 19-seat passenger jet in a 1-2 seating configuration. Um it's interesting. I don't you know. Shut, I, you shut your mouth, sir. <laughs> big windows. So we should expect uh, Alaska to run these in a combi config? <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, well, yeah, I think unfortunately the way the cargo would load in, that wouldn't work so well. But because uh, it loads from the back, but the, the uh, secure walls at the front. Um, but yeah, no, it's. I think it's an interesting idea. It's, what's also interesting to me is just, you know, we lost 19 seat passenger planes for the most part. Um mm. Was that a and, loss? Really? Yeah. I mean, 
they disappeared depending on what you believe about where demand is going to be for the foreseeable future and what you know the right types of size planes are i guess you also have the pilatus and you've got the technum 2012 so there are some props but the, those are a little smaller you know when you don't have when you no longer have the embraer 120 or the beechcraft 1900 what do you do for that segment of the market and go find a used jetstream 31 <laughs> i mean I guess go to Sun Air, right, in Denmark. Not sure how many more that those are going to be flying for long. And it's, it's just interesting to me that there's now another option in that space, in a, in a market that had appeared to be completely uh, banished. And it, and it doesn't look, Foz, like it can be ever configured as a dual purpose because it's, I mean, it's basically, I don't know, even know how you'd finish, fit like a cargo pallet on there. So, um, could with you put the seats on the wings? You could, yeah. I it's, mean, they're they're not going to be long flights, right? You can make it like the swing ride at Great Adventure. I was just saying, hang them down from under the wing. <laughs> yeah. and you can just, wee. It is it is interesting. I mean, this could be. I could totally see Alaska doing this as a Q four hundred replacement at some point. <laughs> oh man, maybe a little small for that. Uh, it's nine hundred nautical miles is the range on it, and um, that's for. So that was. That's, let me pull back that tab up. I think that was for ferry distances. Okay. Um. Yeah, I have. I mean, you could finally replace the Newark Allentown bus. There you go. <laughs> um, something Ma- I saw it said, uh, no, yeah, maximum range was 900 nautical miles, but I think the Wikipedia page suggested that was like for ferrying um, and that in operations it was more like 400 nautical miles for cargo. Yeah. I could, I could, I mean, it makes sense that FedEx is taking these. So here in PDX, so PDX is like a big um, cargo airport, if people didn't know. Uh, and they have a bunch of 208s that come in and basically feed from all the destinations in lower Washington and Oregon, um, the big FedEx jets all day long. So I'll probably be seeing these here <laughs> pretty shortly. And not, and not Newark. I mean, FedEx runs a ton of them in and out of Newark. Oh really? Yeah, because that's one of their. That's Newark is yeah, it's a huge hub for them. Oh, I didn't know that. I imagine into like upstate New York, even rural Connecticut or Western Massachusetts, probably gets the little planes. You Buffalo, Albany, but they'll run like a three hundred to Manchester. What do they? So are you? How do they fit those props in then? Uh, with with the rest of the traffic, it's, it's in the middle of the night. Oh, okay, okay. The the props are most of the FedEx planes like they they start coming in after midnight. Gotcha. Because the the props here are like all day, like it's like a they have like a schedule. Uh, they have to be at the airport by like six p.m. So they'll be flying over the house to land at five five forty five, and just one after another. <laughs> right, but what you have to remember is we're three hours ahead, so we have more time. Yep, true, very true. Oh man, um, next up, we've got Boeing giving us a confident travel initiative. What is this? It sounds like BS. Oh, sounds like marketing. <laughs> well, well, tell me about it. Um, Mike Delaney, uh, who has 31 years of Boeing experience, including uh, airplane development and aviation and engineering and vice president of, of digital transformation for Boeing commercial airlines or Boeing commercial airplanes, uh, will lead the Boeing Confident Travel Initiative team that will work with airlines, global regulators, industry stakeholders, flying passengers, infectious disease experts, and behavioral specialists to establish industry-recognized safety recommendations. The team is also advising operators on existing approved disinfectants that are compatible with airplane flight decks and cabins and testing other sanitizers. Interesting. So my first question is, will they include Taiwan? (laughs) Ooh. Keep the glove. Uh, Comes out swinging below the belt. I like that. (laughs) I like that we use this. I like that we use the same like reference. I said, "Keep the gloves up," and you said, "He's hitting below the belt." <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's a fair question. It is, uh, especially considering that uh, both Ava and China Airlines have bought many Boeing planes. 
or the soon to be renamed China Airlines. <laughs> the, oh. the airline formerly known as China Airlines. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's so they're basically saying they're gonna they're they're putting together a group of people to tell airlines and cargo airlines how to socially distance and make this travel. I think it's it's really a, a marketing position of trying to explain, you know, A, there is some, you know, science behind making sure that whatever disinfectants you're using don't erode the interior of the aircraft or the seats or whatever. So there is something there. But a lot of it, I think, is all is really uh, convincing passengers that it's safe to be on an airplane. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like they're they're selling planes right now. So yeah. anything they can do. We're barely really even building them. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Uh, I was reading, you know, I saw that uh, thing in Hong Kong that they're testing out where they spray you, they disinfect you. Um, Oh, the pod for the employees to walk through at the airport? Yeah. And so apparently in Abu Dhabi, they're doing the same thing. Like that they've been, there's a video that Etihad put out or the the airport of Abu Dhabi put out that shows you going through this disinfectant and they're doing temperature checks and all these things. My question is how, how effective is the disinfectant? You know, if this is an airborne illness, like, uh, what's the point of the disinfectant? Is there a reason for it? If you're carrying it on your clothing or skin or on your bag or whatever else is in there with you. So like the off chance. I mean, it's like this. That's like the a very. Shoot. Yeah. A very low transmission vector. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I guess that's just there to make people feel better, maybe. You know, yes and no. I think unfortunately right now there's so little still hard data about mm-hmm. a lot of things that related to this, that the default is not do nothing, but do everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you know, it was interesting. There was a call with IATA as there is every week this morning. And it was Nick Kareen, who's their VP of passengers and cargo and something else and something else. Uh, relatively senior guy there was basically saying, you know, the goal is to come up with a multi-layered approach. It sounded a lot like TSA kind of <laughs> mumbo jumbo. Really, I mean, with the exception of they don't want the TSA to be involved at all. Um, or the, T- the government, the U.S. government doesn't want the TSA to do it. Uh, the airlines do. Um, but there's a lot of this sort of multi-layer thing. But one of the things they said repeatedly during the call is we have to make sure that whatever actions we're putting into place can be updated over time. So as the technology improves and as the science advances, we can get rid of whatever extra layers we don't really need. Mm. And he cited uh, post 9-11, the shoe bomber and the liquid ban as two things that we clearly have better technology now for scanning against without requiring the uh, liquids rule divestitures, but we're not doing it. And those rules really were never supposed to be permanent. And yet somehow they have been because no one is willing to look soft on security, even if it's all for show. And that raises the very real risk of whatever we implement next related to COVID-19 is going to become very permanent, not temporary. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and going into Hong Kong, even right before all this, there's they did temperature checks, right? Even if even if, you know, you were healthy, they, you still went through the checkers leaving immigration and other airports. I saw it as well before you got into immigration because you yeah, because it yeah. yeah, it's always when you walk down that long aisle. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, it's one of those things. I, it's not that one's not invasive, but potentially we face something that could be invasive if if these stick around later on. The, I mean, the temperature checks, you know, the question I ask about the temperature check is, right, like you can have a fever for any number of reasons other than COVID-19, right? Is that really effective? Is that really the right thing, right? Yeah. And I, so the, you know, the question is, does that mean an immediate no-fly you know, not list, but no fly ruling, or is it require follow up? Would they then make you get a test? How quickly can any of that happen? There's there's still way too many of these unanswered questions, but 
There is also a clause in the contract of carriage from a lot of airlines that says if you pose a health risk to staff or other passengers, we can decline your right to fly. And while it's rarely uh, executed upon, could they say that? Yes, they could Mm -hmm. say if you've got a fever of 100 or whatever the threshold number they want to use is, even if it's not COVID-19, you're still sick and could become communicable on the plane. We're not letting you on board. So that raises an interesting question, right? Because prior to this, if you were ill, and you call the airline saying, I'm not feeling good. I have a little bit of fever. Or, shit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, are we like going to a world of double standards now? They're airlines. We've been there for a long time. <laughs> <Shay>. <laughs> you set that one up way too easy, Foss. Sorry. Maybe that was intentional. I mean, maybe what we need to do is temperature checks in a sulfur cloud. If you don't pass out from the sulfur cloud, <laughs> then you're suspect. So, I mean, it's good. I mean, it's a good question, Foss, but like, it, this is comes back to what Seth was just saying about like IATA, right? They want the airlines to do it, correct? They want the airlines to manage this because it's it's on the airlines to decline a passenger uh, well, on the plane. Th- th- yes and no. IATA would much prefer that all the health stuff be handled by governments, all the data collection, all this. They don't want to have responsibility for any of that from a liability perspective. They mm. just want to be able to say, nope, you didn't pass the government checks. You can't come on. And the cost perspective. And the cost perspective, yeah. And it would be probably better for the airlines if that was the case as well, because then the airline's not the one going, you can't travel, right? And pissing people off. Um, then you have to get the government and the airline to talk to actually, you know, not cancel your return ticket or your... So people are telling me that we can spin up these apps on, you know, whatever in five minutes and I have a new Uber, but we can't get the government and the airlines to communicate? Oh, man, we're doomed. <laughs> well, that's because you want something that's practical, not something that's just, you know, encourages laziness. <laughs> Oh, man. Speaking of which, we had a friend of the show, uh, Cena, sent us a link uh, to a, an article on retool.com. Um, and about it's about the technology that changed air travel. And it's fascinating. Um, and it talks about GDSs and what they are and why they exist. And uh, he asks a question, Seth, and I'll let you uh, talk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, the story he linked is a history of basically all the uh, travel computer systems, the back-end systems that the airlines run. And, you know, it starts with, they show a version of it as flight reservation bookings done on index cards. I've seen pictures of it done on giant chalkboards. There's, the history is insanely inefficient. And, I mean, even when I was in uh, Myanmar not long ago, five years back now, they were running it on Excel um, for the airline I booked with because I went in to pay and saw their my reservation in the spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's also highly available, highly performant, super database systems now um, from Amadeus and Saver and all those things. And that sort of evolved. Uh, and there's some cross compatibility, but also some challenges and all these other things. And the, the question is, you know, sort of what does the next generation of all that look like? And it's NDC or new distribution capability uh, is the IATA backed and airline backed sort of concept where you still have a PNR or reservation locator. You still have booking details, but it really becomes a single true repository of way more information and way more flexibility and way more data about any particular trip. So combining flights and hotel bookings and uh, rental cars and any other service that uses you know, the platform gets easier. Um, and you can do some of those linkings even today in the legacy um, platforms, but it's all supposed to be much easier. Uh, the other thing that's supposed to change is the way the airlines do their sales and how are not sales in terms of discounting, but just selling tickets. And right now you have booking our booking classes, right? All the the different letters and number of seats per letter and fare classes or fares and, you know, are defined by which bucket it sells into and the availability and all that stuff. 
the idea is to get rid of a lot of that and truly get to much more of a sort of black box idea of what the numbers look like and how it, um, you know, oh, Stephen needs to fly today. Well, he's going here to there. Um, we think for Stephen, the price is X based on we know he's oh one k or not. And we know that he's probably traveling for work, not for leisure and all these other things. So um, it's really interesting how some of that comes together. Um, we actually... I'm trying to get remember now how long ago it was. It was uh, last September. I was in London and met with uh, Mark uh, Linehan, right? Mark Linehan, um, and spoke with him about a lot of this stuff uh, in an episode. I'll try to put a remember to put a link to that in the notes here about how some of these things are changing. But Cena sort of wanted to know is like, is any of that really happening? <laughs> um, hmm. And the answer is sort of it was progressing obviously right now with the COVID 19 situation and everybody's halting all spending on any project that had any you know capital expense it's hard to know where the airlines are going to be moving forward um and if uh, all the suppliers that were sort of building the middleware to sit there that sat between the back end pss and all the sales channels uh is really moving forward but that's the real risk is that it's still it's another layer on top of everything it's not a new platform that's going to replace the PSS mm. or GDS backends. So uh, at least not right now. And, you know, I, I shudder to think this, but 20, 30 years from now, there's a very good chance we're still running these 1960s, you know, era database and platforms because that's where some airlines will still be running because that's what works. And it's how the airline systems have always worked. Why fix something if it ain't broke? Well, eventually they get expensive to keep running, but I, I mean, I would rather have the old system than the black box. That's just me as a customer. Right. So, so this is the risk is do you trust the airline to give you the right price for you versus, you know, being a right where we are advanced users. There's no doubt. But when we, you know, sometimes I just look and buy the ticket and fine. And every time, other times if I'm confused as to why something looks mispriced or a different number than I expected it to be. Will I go and look? What are the published fares? What buckets are open? Does it look like this airline is overbooked that day or for the week? You know, things like that. When you get rid of all those booking class details, a lot of that information goes away. And mm. so it's, I guess, you know, the underlying fares can always change. So you can't say a, a Q fare is always $400 on this city pair, right? Sometimes it's 350 sometimes it's 450 Sometimes you, know, you just don't know. It can always change. But there's also a, at this moment right now, I see that there are fares published at these 12 price points. If I'm at, you know, number 12, maybe I buy. If I'm at number six, maybe I don't because I see that there's potential, you know, I, you know, it's a game game theory, but I think there's potential that that price is going to go down um, based on who the hell knows what. But uh, trying to figure that out, I can understand why they don't, you know, the airlines want us to not necessarily have that information. There's also the argument they make of like, well, we know you're a 1K, so bag is, bags are free, so we don't even have to sell you that. And when you buy from United, it'll look cheaper because you don't have to pay for priority boarding or a bag fee or a seat assignment, where if you're shopping on American, you would pay for all of those things. Mm. So, you know, that's part of that's part of the we know who you are, so we know how to sell to you. The counterpoint to that is the stuff I mentioned earlier. It's like, oh, well, we know Steven is going to, you know, Montreal again. It's almost certainly a work trip again. What if we bump the price up 100 bucks and see if this company will still pay it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yay. I, love, um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure which. <laughs> well, but there's one, you know, there's one part, one variable to all this is historical pricing, right? So you buy a ticket today, you fly the outbound, and then you want to change back. The one of the nice things is you get historical pricing if you choose to change it. How do you do that if you've got fully dynamic pricing? Hmm. You just reprice, maybe? I don't know. 
I mean, I will give the article credit. They had current day pictures of these systems. So they know exactly what was sold today, right? I was referring, I was making a joke about the pictures in the article. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were saying they have day pictures of like when you have a reservation, they have, they have an idea. Uh, so you're talking about the lady standing in front of the, yes, uh, the type. IBM, the IBM <laughs> the, with the big plastic tag on top. <laughs> oh man. Good stuff. So, uh, in other news, Garuda's, uh, former CEO, uh, has been put in jail for his bribery. Uh, and that, that term will be eight years. Uh, kind of amazing. We talked about this on the show a long time ago. Uh, yeah, this is tied to the Airbus uh, bribery scandal where the British, uh, I forget the, which of the offices is, but the British, one of the British offices basically came out and did a full investigation. It's like, yeah, Airbus definitely bribed some people. And I think Airbus paid a 4 billion euro fine, mm. um, which is, you know, a lot of money. And then on top of that, it triggered investigations in a number of countries where many Airbus aircraft were purchased. Uh AirAsia did one right around New Year's where Tony Fernandez and his second in command sort of stepped aside for a little while to let a investigation happen without them involved. Uh, they were cleared of any wrongdoing. And they were actually, that was one where it was, he had, you know, Airbus had sponsored his auto racing team also. There was a lot of weird cross, uh, cross pollination, let's say. And hmm. but he got, he got off without uh, any, uh, not even a slap on the wrist. Uh, the Garuda guy, not so much. He's definitely, he got found guilty. So, oopsie. Well, his little motorcycle thing didn't help either. Who's? The Garuda guy. He was also, part of the whole thing was he was, uh, wasn't he the guy that brought the motorcycle in as parts? <laughs> oh, in the, it was in a delivery flight. He, like, yeah. in like the box of spare parts, he also tried to import a Harley. Super, yeah, super expensive bike into Garuda and like sneak it through customs. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because it, <laughs> it was bought through like the uh, uh, Garuda Amsterdam agent uh, uh, ticket office manager's bank account. It was <laughs> something definitely shady. Stand up citizen. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so Brian Summers posted on Twitter that uh, effective on July 1st, um, that United is uh, adjusting some of their staffing levels. And this looks like it's an internal memo. Um, and they will, uh, United is going to currently staff uh, or will staff their flights. Um, uh, to one less flight attendant, right? Or is it Let's, explain this to me? I can't, I, I'm trying to understand it because it's so the, FAA rules say 50, uh, one FA per every 50 seats. Okay. Right. So if it's 300 seats on a plane, you need six. If it's 299, you need five. That's why like uh, JetBlue was at 150 seats on its A320s for so long because then they only needed three. Mm-hmm. And then when they, they were more and then they cut it down and like, oh, we're giving everybody extra legroom and cutting a flight attendant. Um, so uh, that was part of the situation. Um, but for premium heavy routes, particularly long haul, they overstaff to support the higher touch levels of service. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got you may have a triple seven with whatever, 280 seats on it going from New York to or Newark to Frankfurt. That's only six FAs needed. But to do a full dinner service in business in Polaris plus in economy and everything else, maybe you need eight or nine. And now what United is saying is, well, there's no passengers and we've basically cut all the service down anyways. So uh, we're going to be cutting the flight attendants on board to FAA minimums plus one. Wow. So it's, I think it's FAA minimums on all single aisle and plus one for the Polaris stuff. Yep. Wow. 
And, I, and I'm reading this. I mean, they're talking about you know, on longer flights, they've suspended pre-departure beverages in Polaris, no hot towels, uh, no linens, and they've combined the appetizer salad, main entree, and pre-packaged dessert onto one tray. So it's basically the, the quick meal. Um, and then in an economy, they're serving a snack, meal, and dessert all in one step. Uh, not unreasonable. Do you think um, pricing should reflect these changes? I mean, I'd say if they're permanent changes, then yes. If it's temporary, then I wouldn't worry too much about it. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the first topic we talked about. Will it, will these things be temporary, or how long will they be in place? I mean, this is this. If you listen to uh, you know the Trumps, this will all be over after the election. <laughs> well, conveniently, um, effective July first, though. So I mean, that, that United is already planning for like the summer season with this stuff. They kind of have to. I mean, should United also is finally sort of ramping capacity back up a little bit. They're going to be at twenty five percent of last year's capacity. Uh, I think going into going into June or going into July. Um, going into June, I think. But uh, they also still don't know what July's going to look like. They're ramping up slowly, but it's not a lot. So they do have to plan that far out, though. You have to make decisions and publish schedules. Yeah, it's going to be seventy five percent canceled, so twenty five percent of historical capacity for the month of July. Um, coming off of, you know, 10 to 15% May and June. Yeah. And a I lot do- of airlines are doing that. There's like a whole, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, we're back to 20% of our previous capacity. Let's celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just wonder like now it's just like you're paying for the bigger seat at this point. That's it. You're always just paying for the bed. Yeah, true. True. But I, now you're not even getting, you know, a, a, a blanket. It sounds like. <laughs> so. I hope you stole a Polaris one when you could. No, I didn't. <laughs> one of my flight, one of our flight, my flight attendant friends commented the other day. He's like, "Yeah, a passenger came on and like asked me for an extra blanket and pointed to his." To which the flight attendant responded, um, "Well, we haven't catered those in some months, so you must have brought that one from home today, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, and also on Twitter, we have a lot of stories on from Twitter today. Um, I'll try to spend way too much time there. Yeah, it's probably the truth. Uh, there's some uh, history happening uh, that happened today. Um, Etihad is flying from the UAE to Israel, and it's going to be the first, I guess, a direct commercial flight between the two. Um, and it's for uh, coronavirus aid to the Palestinians. Um, so I did of, a couple hours ago. Kind of amazing. I mean, it's that is historic. It is historic. Uh, I never thought we'd see it. They it did go around Saudi Arabia. It like went the long way, or not Saudi Arabia. The, the flight path is sort of definitely the long way around. Um, not overflying. Uh, yeah, when I, around Saudi Arabia, it crossed up through Iraq. Um, based on the positions, it's hard to, there's a gap in the uh, picture, but maybe it went up almost into Turkey and then down through northern Cyprus before looping down and coming in from the coast into Tel Aviv. So, <laughs> so they can't they can't go through Saudi. That makes I mean makes sense. Um, um, there's you can't except Air India got special permission to to transit Saudi Arabia for its flights. From really? when it last year when it launched flights, it was able to transit Saudi Arabia while El Al was not. <laughs> and even then, they, that was a big deal at the time, also. Um, so you know, slowly but surely, every you know couple hundred years, we make a little bit of progress. <laughs> Very true. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I play uh, flight simulators quite a bit, um, and especially right now, <laughs> I do. <laughs> so uh, I play uh, on my iPad mostly just because I need something that I want to, I can carry with me. Uh, and I play infinite flight, 
which um, it's, it's available on Android and uh, iOS devices. Um, and today they announced that they're actually implementing SIDs and STARS, so basically instrument procedures, uh, into the into the app. So uh, it used to be they had all the fixes and, and waypoints and stuff in the database, and you would just pick which where how you want to fly your route. And if, if you happen to know um, a standard arrival, a star, uh, you could pick the waypoints on that star and you would get it. Now it'll be an actual published route that you can do on arrival into an airport, which is kind of cool. Um, and you can have the uh, uh, altitude restrictions. So if you have to cross a waypoint at a certain altitude, you can the, the airplane will do that. So that's coming in another version. They just keep making it better and better. It's great. When you say you have to cross it like a certain altitude, this isn't like a video game type where like if you don't do it, they shoot you down and you have to start over, right? No, it, it, you can get ghosted. Things <laughs> like to where you don't show up because they have like real world uh, or not real world, but like uh, real time um, traffic. So other people flying on your servers show up um, and they have air, AV, they have controllers. So they have approach and everything. Um, and so the controller can actually ghost you and make you invisible to the rest of the server. Cool. Yeah. 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 So for all of the aviation geeks out there that want something to do, um, check out Infinite Flight. You're trying to you get see- you're trying to get Seth off Twitter, aren't you? <laughs> I you know I when I was a kid I had a simulator once and you know on a God, probably a Gateway 2000 uh, old ass <laughs> 286 uh, my gateway was um, I never got into it I really I'm really happy to let someone else fly the planes um, <laughs> really or, you know, in real life or virtually. So <laughs> you can't, um, you can't, can't have rum within eight hours of getting into the doctor. You know, so. my joke was always, you know, they won't let me take my drink up there. It's not even the drinking. It's just, I like to daydream and stare out the window and, you know, gawk, not be also paying attention to all the nuance and details and making sure that we don't, you know, the airplane stays in the air. Yeah. And I, and I love all that nuance and detail. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, have you seen any of the, the trailer slash uh, test stuff around the new Microsoft Flight Simulator? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. It's actually tempting me to get a, a PC <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to play it. So uh, it looks it looks amazing. Like they've just done an amazing job. I'm, I'm interested to see how well it runs for people on their machine, like on current day machines, uh, because they're touting, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be a resource hog. It's going to be efficient. It's going to look good for everybody. And I, I really want to see how that turns out. Yeah. So um, Thai Airways was a, uh, Saved by the government. Shocking. <laughs> you don't say. They, they were about to uh, go bankrupt, I guess. De- and, declare uh, bankruptcy, maybe. Yeah, it was. I thought they went into administration. Did they? I can't remember. I can't keep track of the airlines that do and that don't. I think the the uh, the government had told them to come up with a restructuring plan. Like the government was planning for them to go out uh, to go under, and uh, then they stepped in. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was sort of a you're going to get bank, you're going to be bankrupt. We may have to. It, there was definitely a whole lot of oh my god, they're going to go out of business, and the government and the airline issued statements saying we're not going out of business. <laughs> um, and so then it was a question of well, if it's not a liquidation, what will it be? And obviously, it's a debt restructuring. The government will handle some of the uh, some of that uh, debt pay, buyout and whatnot. I, what really is interesting to me is why, and I don't understand is how and why they maintain such a mishmash fleet like mm. there are ways and like what's the, is there really a pride situation there i just don't understand because like there, there's absolutely ways to be a horribly inefficient government run organization airline organization and also not do things that are like completely stupid you can only be slightly stupid and still be a pain in the ass for the rest of the free market so i i, I, I am surprised they keep the a380s around um it seems like a overkill for them especially now um 
and they were they were running them to weird destinations all the time. Um, and then and then they have like run down A three thirties, don't they? That are just beat to hell. Uh, and then they still have seven forty sevens. It is it is very weird. Yeah. And then they're taking new deliveries of A three fifties, right? Yep. And seven eighty sevens. Pretty sure. They're almost, if, they actually might be worse than Qatar Airways, and the, yeah, we got one of those category. <laughs> um, I mean, sh- not, how long ago, when was the Myanmar Mistake Fairs? <sighs> a few years Remember? now. Yeah, it's like... 2014, 2015? Yeah, right around then, yeah. Yeah, I was flying A300s. <laughs> um, I flew an A300 into Myanmar on one of those as a positioning flight. And I was like, you know, I was booked it as an award at One Way Inbound. Um and was going through, I was like, wait, if I spend an extra hour in Bangkok airport, I can fly on an A300? Yes, please. Like it was, <laughs> But it was like shocking to me. It was surprising to me that they even still had those around. And there, there's a couple still flying, I think, maybe. But wow, back then, even, it, there weren't a lot of them. So, Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely seems like maybe the government, and they probably won't do this, but the government could step in and say, hey, you need to sell some of these planes or in the leases or whatever it is they're doing because it seems like it's just poorly run. Like whoever's in charge is doesn't know what they're doing well and there's they like they and all Italia like to battle for who should be out of business most i guess i don't know <laughs> the south african airways desperately trying to hang out in that club. <laughs> uh, oh man um so united we're going back and forth here but united uh there's rumor that there's some changes coming to uh airplane configs and this has to do with the regional jets uh, you posted something clear about baby right? scope clause. So seventy and seventy six seat jets. What's the story? The regional jets are operated by under what's called the scope clause, which basically the mainline pilots in their contract have rules about how many of these smaller airlines aircraft are allowed to operate, mm-hmm. and it's based in United's case on relative percentage of mainline aircraft with a cap or some something of that nature, and it's. 200 some odd, I want to say 250, 260 of the 76 seaters. Okay. Um, I'm trying to pull up the link now where I got it. So uh, it's, it's a ratio, right? Of it's, a lot of them are ratios, and, I th- and that one may be a hard cap also. Um, and I think, I think it actually United is a hard cap. And if they add a new small single aisle mainline aircraft type, also known as the A220 or the E90 E2, mm-hmm. um, they can add another 70 smaller planes. So um, it's a it's basically there's but there's caps on them and I can't find the number right now because I closed that tab earlier. Sorry. Um, But the the gist of it is that apparently when they signed the pilot contract in 2016 that established the most recent version of those caps, uh, if United cut or had to furlough any mainline pilots that was on the payroll at that time of the contract signing in 2016, all of the 76 seaters would become 70 seaters. What? Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, you know, tough to try to force the situation. They, no one wanted the mainline pilots in granting that United was allowed to add some more of those planes wanted to protect their mainline jobs. And the idea is if you um, have to start furloughing mainline pilots, we don't want you to do it at the expense of having larger regional jets. Wow. Um, so we got the 550, the CRJ 550, because United, quote unquote, accidentally bought too many 76 seaters and then was like, oops, we got to come up with something to do with these old CRJs. And they came up with a different way to fly them. Um, but now on top of that, they're faced with uh, this potential of needing to furlough a bunch of pilots and all of the 76 seaters would basically lose uh, a row and a half of seats. Wow. And today, uh, Wolf Investments and Hunter Key, who's uh, 
one of the big airline investor guys you hear on the earnings calls all the time and whatnot. They held their uh, transportation, whatever, seminar briefing day and four different airlines spoke, including United's. And someone asked about that. And the United person on the call said that they were in the, they had begun the engineering work to plan for that. So I mean, if, if you look at the numbers, all of the airlines expect significant layoffs and United has a hard num- hard stop line in the sand kind of situation of they've got to do it if they go past that and they are now planning for that eventuality does does that mean though they can keep up the same amount of regional jet flying is that is that they can keep the same number of those frames in the fleet but they have to downsize them okay is my understanding because there's a lot of flying across the country happening on e-175s right now for united i mean that's i mean that's kind of their their go-to bird and 319s and 73gs they're using their smaller jets yep so that's why that's why i was asking about that yeah the the expectation is that the smaller jet thing if they're forced or choose to i mean forced is a relative term but if they are either sort of socially guilted into or governmentally forced into doing blocked middle seats which no one from the airline perspective really wants, but also the airlines understand that they have to get people to buy the seats one way or another. And so blocking those, if, the, if, if you got to block the middle seats for a couple months to make that happen, then the airlines are going to do it. Um, they're flying bigger planes to, you know, if we got to move a hundred people, we'll put a seven, three G, but if now we got to do a hundred people and all the middle seats have to be, be blocked, we need a seven, three, nine ER kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So also, by the way, uh, I don't recommend trying to uh, no block middle seat shame American airlines on Twitter. <laughs> because a journalist did that the other day and one of the twitters one of uh, one of the american airlines uh, spokespeople pr guy or comms guys came back very quickly with these are the number of people that were on your flight this is the number of empty seats there were these are the number of families that were booked together with four three and two people on each pnr are you sure it wasn't one of those in the middle seat <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was great rejoicing in the from the don't try to Twitter shame people uh, <laughs> community of which I'm often one, except for, you know, when I'm Twitter shaming people. I, I, uh, I mean, I saw that one guy that posted, you know, he was a reporter talking about middle sheet. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but like United's public policy, the published policy was never that will guarantee a middle seat. And and this guy's like, well, United said they were going to block middle seats. Well, United was purposefully very vague about how they phrased it in an effort to make people think that's what was going to happen. Yep. So they had, but had plausible deniability or had legitimate deniability, but plausibly it didn't look so good, right? That's a legal win and PR loss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, two stories left. We, the A220 uh, final assembly line has opened today. The newest one in, in Alabama. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's open for business. Uh, it's it's open today, right? I mean, it's like they're working. They're, on new- they are started. They've started assembly of the first A220 for JetBlue expected to be delivered at the end of this year. Yeah, very cool. It's very cool. And it will be a Dash 300. Uh, they're only going to build the 300s in Alabama, at least for now. Um, with JetBlue and Delta taking them, I feel like I feel like the A220 now is something that, that United and Americans should seriously be looking at. Yes, <laughs> no need for discussion. Just that's me brain farting. Um, and a little story here to, to tickle Foz's fancy: um, Qatar Airways and American Airlines, um, their co-chair agreement uh, is restarting. Uh, Foz, just to get you a little happy, a little excited, maybe. <laughs> Eh. I like Qatar. I mean, they're a nice service, but I don't fly them that often. I'm not like the uh, producer. Well, and it's like they're they're only putting it's placing Qatar uh, Qatar Airways uh, codes on American Airlines domestic flights, right? Like that's the big. It's going to go the other direction eventually. Eventually, yep. Um, 
Yeah, the, the interesting thing, the, and sort of amusing thing, uh, I think Jason or Ben always pointed out when he was talking about this this morning. Uh, eventually, it's going to be on over a thousand daily domestic flights at all at ten of Qatar Airways U.S. gateways. But the first tranche of them uh, that went on sale a couple days ago over the weekend uh, is through Chicago and Dallas, covering two hundred destinations across the U.S., including. Miami and Houston and Atlanta, all of which are Qatar Airways destinations. Yes. So it's, it's a little weird the way they're phrasing that. I don't know why they picked those cities to highlight in the release. Um, and if that's supposed to make us wonder if those cities are coming back on Qatar Airways, Qatar Airways medal in the near future, I would imagine Atlanta was had been a pretty weak market, um, but they were doing it just to keep Delta pissed off. So I don't know if it'll come back or not. But Houston, I could see coming back. I thought I thought uh, they had said something about Houston, but I'd have to find it. Um, I mean, they they do pretty good business in the, into Houston. So uh, I could totally see Qatar flying something larger than a three hundred and fifty just to say they have the largest aircraft going into Atlanta. <laughs> well, you uh, know, they showed up at the A three hundred and eighty like for the first flight, and Delta. I don't remember how what the exact details were, but they quote unquote accidentally could, didn't release the gate that they that Qataris are supposed to pull into when there's not many A380 available gates, and they ended up having to use the hard stand. Yep. Oh my yeah. gosh. But you know, now that the Delta is getting rid of their triple sevens, so it's not that hard to send a bigger plane there. Yeah. Eh, they only had the two hundred, though. The three five nine was always bigger, wasn't it? I thought the three five nine had a less capacity than the triple seven two hundred. Yes, it depends on the configuration. So. Do you think, do you see, I see some interest, I mean, I see some interesting stuff in the cities announced Minneapolis, St. Paul, Seattle, and San Francisco. So doesn't Qatar have a flight to San Francisco or, or is that only Emirates and uh, Etihad? I don't think Qatar did. Could this be like pointing to, I think they, named, I think they named competitor hubs. Mm. I was, I was wondering if maybe that's like pointing to future service like Seattle. No, I think it really was just naming the competitor hubs. Okay. It's probably more, focused on where the Indian um, traffic is. Mm, gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. Are you still looking uh, at those numbers? Yeah, uh, it's 306 seats on the 350 compared to 288 on the 200 ER or 291 on the LR. So, um, yeah, the 77W, the 300 ER, gets a ton more seating on it, but the 200, not so much. Wow. Um, oh, isn't, did we talk about Delta getting rid of the 777s last week? I think we did. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think that uh, anyone else will buy the LRs? That's the ones I was thinking about. I mean, what market do you really need for the LR now that you have the seven, eight, nine? And the, yeah, that's true. Right, three fifty. Or I mean, or depending on which way your airline tends to lean. But I, I think it was always a relatively niche product, mm. and there's other options. Now they're young planes; they're only like ten and a half years old. Uh, my my thought was cargo conversion. Okay. Third-party cargo conversion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, I think I mean, it's a show, guys. Right, I guess. Sorry, I was just no. going to say if there depends. I mean, if I'm sure someone will take them up if they're cheap. Mm. But I will say I was amused just thinking about. You guys remember when we were talking about seven million dollar triple sevens that Delta was going to buy up cheap because they wanted to grow their fleet? <laughs> yes. Cheap and easy. We could just throw a couple more triple sevens in. It's no big deal. And <laughs> they maybe like bought one as a shell for spare parts, but. Um, yeah, without engines on it, I think. Um, anyway, I just that that they did that and made such a big deal of that, and now we're retiring the type is interesting to me. Maybe they can <laughs> buy them from themselves. <laughs> the best rumor I heard was trying to arrange a, a swap where United would take the triple sevens, probably the ERs, because those would match the existing fleet. No, because those are Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. Yeah. yeah, 
Are the LRs GE? Yeah, the LRs only come with the GE 150. Makes sense. Um, somehow do a swap where United would take those and Delta would get the 764s because Delta is definitely keeping its 764s around for a little while longer. But because um, those are also relatively young 767s. But I don't see that making much sense one way or another. I could see Delta wanting those 764s, though. So United might make a little money out of all this. I think most of those are leased, though. Oh, darn. Oh, well, I tried. But it it gets United out of its lease obligation. That's true. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that's a show. What do you guys think? Solid hour, solid hour of rambling. Okay. Um, <laughs> to our listeners, uh, you can find us on Twitter at dots lines. Um, like you saw today, we, we referenced Twitter quite a bit. So leave us a note there. You can send us an email. You can leave us a note on Patreon and uh, we'll probably include it in the show uh, until next time. Happy travels. Take care. Plane spotter says the seven, six, fours are not least, but who the hell knows? Happy travels, everybody. <laughs> I thought they were, but I could be yeah. wrong because I remember yeah. a ton of those were Wells Fargo. I gotta find the stop button. Hang on. I'm surprised United's only flying seven seven six threes in right now. Until what? To more or fewer? Just there's only seven active. Yeah, they parked a whole bunch of them. They brought a few back. They have fifty seven all totals. <laughs>